Today, we are actually starting a new series, uh, but we are also continuing an old series. We are starting in Genesis chapter 6 today. Uh, the name of this series is, oh, what is the name of the series? Oh, man. Remnant of a Savior. That's what it is. And the reason why we named it that is because throughout history, as we will see in Genesis, that God fulfills his promise to send a Savior, and he preserves mankind throughout their wickedness, to deliver the promise, to bring one who would save us from our sins. The first five chapters of Genesis we talked about last year. If you're interested in catching up, I'd encourage you to go and listen to those. But just to give you a brief review, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates all things from nothing, and it is very good. In Genesis 3, perversion enters the world through the heart of man as they disobey God and bring sin and the consequences of sin into the world. We call that the fall. But even in the midst of God pronouncing the curses, he gives this promise. And this is the remnant that God preserves throughout history to save us. In Genesis 3.15, he says, to, the, to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It is a promise that a savior will come from the line of the woman. And we will see that it will come through the line of Seth and the line of Noah to bring salvation to all God chooses. Today, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 6. If you would turn, it's page 5 in the Red Bible, if that's what you are looking at. Um, And as we look at this, uh, it's so important because Genesis sets a foundation for how we read the rest of the Bible. It's almost like an index for how we understand the prophets that we read in the Old Testament history and the land of Israel and everything that happens in the Old Testament. And so it's so exciting to go through Genesis because really it is a framework through which you understand the rest of the Bible with new light, with greater depth and understanding. And so we are going to start Genesis chapter 6. We're going to read the whole chapter. Okay, We're going to do about a chapter a week to get through Genesis. Genesis 6, 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives, and they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. 
Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their ways, their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's pray. God, as we open up this text today, uh, there is a lot there, Lord, and we will not cover it all. But there are such riches for our hearts, such an accurate understanding of humanity and such gifts of grace. Lord, pray that we would see how applicable this is to our life and may it lead us to joy in our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. In looking at this text, James Montgomery Boyce recalls a Sunday school from when he was a child. And during the Sunday school, a teacher brought this big piece of paper in and it was called the divine measure and there was this yardstick gauging how holy a person was and if you were at the very top then you were a hundred percent holy and so he would ask the the children does anyone reach a hundred percent is anyone a hundred percent perfect morally sinless and of course they would say yes jesus right that's always the answer in sunday school yes no or jesus So they knew it was Jesus because it couldn't have been yes or no. So they said, yes, it's Jesus. And then the teacher started to ask him, where are you on this chart? What what percentage are you? And some of the kids would say, you know, I'm a really good kid. You know, sometimes I like to take toys or take candy I'm not supposed to. So maybe 75% or so. Other kids would say, you know, 51%. I'm just over the line. I'm a pretty bad kid, but I'm good in my heart. Things like that. And I'm convinced that even the people in the time of Noah would give the same answers that these children did. We often do. 
If you look at that chart, where would you say you are in your own heart? How good are you? Are you are you a pretty good person, but you're not Mother Teresa, so you're like 75%? Or are you just making sure you're over 50% to make sure you can get into heaven, and so you're right at 51%? Where are you on this church? What is your assessment of your own morality, of your own goodness? Well, what we're going to see here is God's assessment of your morality. God's assessment of your goodness. And and that's probably the most important assessment, isn't it? The most important assessment of how good you are is God's assessment of you, not your assessment of yourself. And we see it here in Genesis 6-5. And we have a term that we use for this. And I'm going to give away God's answer right away. But we call this total depravity. And the definition of it is more or less Genesis 6-5. Look with me, if you would, in Genesis 6-5. We're going to be looking back at it a few times. Leading up to this verse, what happens is that there is, there is a perversion of marriage, uh, that the sons of, the, the, the sons of God marry the daughters of men. And so there is, uh, that is a huge debate on what that means, but there is a marriage that is perverted, that is wrong. It was forbidden and they pursued it. Uh, there was even rape. There was different violence that was in the world. And so in Genesis 5, it reads this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually look at look at how he emphasizes this three times with every only and continually he says every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time you know we might look at this and say boy it was really bad in the time of noah but this is god's assessment of fallen humanity which includes you and me that our hearts are wicked beyond belief that we don't even appear on that chart. That is how evil our hearts are apart from God. And we cannot even understand the holiness of God. You see, as we look at ourselves and we gauge ourselves, and if we say, you know, I'm about 50% or 75%, the problem is that we are using the wrong chart. We are comparing ourselves with other people. And maybe we do very well amongst other people, but compared to God, we do not even appear on the chart. We are not even a blip because his holiness and his perfection is beyond anything we could possibly comprehend. If he would show it to us in full, we would certainly fall down and die because he is that holy and that glorious. Now, you know, this is not the prevailing opinion of the world, right? The prevailing opinion of the world is that we are good in our hearts, but sometimes we do bad things, right? The majority of people. But look what God assesses. Look at verse 5 with me again. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth. And so how did he assess that wickedness? Did he look to their habits of rape? Did he look to their habits of violence? Did he look to their habits of perverting marriage? Not at all. Look what he looks to. He says, And that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil Continually. This is a scary statement because what it means is that our hearts are far more wicked than our actions. It means that, see, our hearts are unrestrained, right? We can think of anything we want to think, but our actions are restrained by the law, uh, by physics. They're restrained by the government. They're restrained by law. 
They're restrained by peer pressure, but our hearts have no restraint. And the intentions of our heart are wicked. The way we want to treat other people is wicked in and of ourselves. And so God looks at the intention of our hearts and he sees wickedness and he sees evil. God does not see 75%. God sees 0%. Boy, I'm glad the sermon doesn't end here. (laughs) I'm glad we don't pray and leave. It goes on. How does God respond to our wicked hearts? First, we see that God is grieved. This might be the most haunting verse in all of Scripture. It is a verse that strikes me at the core and agrees me to read it. Look at Genesis. We'll start in verse 5 again. Verse 6 is where we'll see how haunting it is. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, whom he created, was great in the earth, and that every intention of their thought of their heart was only evil continually. And then here it is. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. There is a pattern in creation in which God creates things, whether it be the sun and the moon, the earth, the waters, whatever it might be. And after he makes it, he steps back and it says, and God saw that it was good. This is a repeated theme in Genesis 1, God makes something and he sees that it is good. Well, God takes another look at humanity. And what he sees is horrific. And it is not good. It grieves him to his heart. God created us, not because he needed love, not because he was lonely. It's not like he needed a pet to entertain him. God created us for the very simple purpose to glorify himself and to pour out his love upon you. All of us have taken his creative love towards us and we have thrown it to the side. We have all committed spiritual adultery against God, chasing after other idols in our life, whatever it might be, sex, money, control, power, whatever it is. We have all run away from God. We have all pursued other things. We have betrayed the one who loves us more than anyone else in the entire universe. All of us have done that. When I was uh, in in elementary school and junior high, behind my house there were these woods, is what we call it. It's kind of a forest. And uh, a construction company came in, wiped them out, and put up this subdivision. Well, one of my friends uh, from school, who I knew just a little bit because he was a grade below me, moved in. His name was Justin. And so Justin moved in behind me, and I thought, you know, it would be good for me to go and, and chat with Justin and maybe befriend him because he's new to the neighborhood. And so I went over there, and Justin and I had this very strong relationship. Uh, we grew to be really good friends, if not best friends. Every day we'd hang out and play basketball or football or whatever it might be. Well, one day... Justin, my best friend, called me up and invited me over. And so I came over to his house, and I walk into his house, and he's there with another friend from his school. And I don't know if he did this to impress him or what, but they both pulled out wiffle ball bats and started to beat me with them. And so I ran out of the house, and I ran home, and I was crying, and my mom asked me what happened. I told her, I said, but don't say anything. And for a few days, I was crying. I, was, I felt betrayed. Honestly, the bats didn't hurt at all. It was that my best friend betrayed me. All of you know what it's like to be betrayed by someone that you love, don't you? 
you know how that hurts your heart, how it crushes you, how it breaks your heart. What we're told here is that when we sin, we break God's heart because we have betrayed him. You know, if you are like me, you have the tendency to minimize the horror of sin. We think, you know, God will forgive me. It's okay if I do this. It's not a big deal. God wants me to have fun. And so we pursue sin, but it breaks his heart because we have betrayed him. It grieves God to his heart. In this passage here in verse 6-6, it literally says that the Lord repented of making us. Which means that he turned back. And that's exactly what God decided to do with creation. God decided to reverse creation by bringing a flood on the earth, by bringing a judgment that was just. And so we see God's grief, but then we see God's judgment. Look in verse 7 with me. After the Lord saw man's wickedness and was grieved in his heart, the Lord said this in verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. And then you can see the global consequences of our sin. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. You know, there's a temptation to look at this passage and say, boy, I do not think a loving God would do something like that. That God would wipe out life on the earth. That seems too harsh. It seems too unfair. But you see, man was warned prior to the consequences of sin. In Genesis 2, just a few chapters earlier, in verse 16 and 17, says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. God had provided abundantly for man. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, only one tree, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The first time death appears in the Bible. It is the consequence of sin. And so God had already given the consequences of sin. It is death. Still, we might say, boy, this really seems unfair. It doesn't seem like the punishment fits the crime. But you will see here, and I I have it laid out. Hopefully, Jason can fit it on one slide. God goes to extraordinary measures to show us that the destruction of the earth fit the crime. Okay? There is a word used in verse 11 through 17, uh, and it's translated differently in the English multiple times, but it's the same Hebrew word, which is shakath, which is, uh, which means to ruin, to corrupt, or to destroy. Good, he did fit on one slide. But I'm going to read it, and every word I'm going to just read is destroyed, every underlined word, so that you understand the consistency that God is telling us, that the punishment fits the crime. Read along with me. It says, now the earth was destroyed in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold it was destroyed for all the flesh had destroyed their way on the earth and God said to Noah I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them behold I will destroy them with the earth and then verse 17 for behold, I, have, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And so what God is telling us with very emphaticness is that the punishment fits the crime. 
that he created man good, that it was all very good. And man brought destruction upon the earth through his sin and through his perversion. And because they brought spiritual corruption, relational corruption, destroying everything that was good, God said, I too will bring destruction as a consequence for the crime. We get this, that the, that the consequences should fit the crime. Um, I don't know if you ever watched those law shows on TV. I'm sure they're 100% accurate and true. But um, one of the things that you'll see is if someone gets convicted of murder or of some heinous crime, there will actually be a separate trial of some sort. I don't know what that's called. Where they'll actually talk about what should be the penalty for this. Because we want to make sure that the punishment fits the crime. Even as parents, I would hope that you would discipline your children differently if they take a toy from a kid or if they punch him and spit on him, right? You need the punishment to fit the crime. And so when we look at the horror of the flood and the absolute destruction of bringing death upon people, what it tells us and reminds us is the heinousness of sin that is absolutely horrible in the sight of God. Because... The punishment fit the crime. And so our our sin is horrible to God. And in his justice, he judges it by bringing death upon the earth. And again, this is good news that the story does not end here. Because even in the midst of God's grief over sin and his judgment, his just judgment of our sin, there is tremendous grace. First, we see God's patience. Look in verse 3 with me said, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be a hundred and twenty years. Sometimes people will take these, this verse and say, see, man is only supposed to live to 120 years of age, then they die. Um, that's not what it means. What it's talking about from when God speaks this 120 years will pass until the flood will come. And so God gives men 120 years to repent. 120 years to repent. I don't give my kids 120 seconds to repent. God gives them 120 years to repent. Even in our Bible study this week in Romans 2, we see God's patience and His kindness leading us to repentance. And so He is patient with them. We also see God's grace by His favor. Look at verse 8 with me. and We'll dwell on this verse for a while. It says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. You know, we hear two things in this passage. One is that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we also hear that Noah was a righteous man. If you check most of children's Bibles uh, and much of the theology in many churches, what you will hear is that Noah was so good, he was such a great person, he was such a righteous person in such a wicked age that God showed him favor, that he earned the favor of God. But if you look at this text closer, you'll see very clearly that there is no way that that can be true. We'd already heard about how every inclination of a man's heart left to his own devices is wicked and evil all the time and continually. But look at the order in this passage. It is absolutely vital to understand what comes first. First, we see that God gives favor to Noah. And then his righteousness comes. And then his blamelessness comes. It is not because Noah was righteous that he found favor. It was because he found favor that he became righteous. 
The second thing that is really critical here that you miss sometimes in the English translation is that the word for favor here, that Noah found favor in God's eyes, is the word grace. Matter of fact, the King James Version translates it that. If you have it, it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What is grace? A simple definition is the unmerited favor of God, the unearned love of God. And so you see, if if Noah earned God's favor, it's no longer grace. And so we see that it wasn't because he was good that God looked favorably on him. God looked favorably on him to make him righteous. This is what grace is. You see, none of us deserve the favor of God. All of us deserve God's fury. All of us deserve a flood that would wipe us out. All of us deserve hell. We are hell-bound sinners, as it says. But God shows grace to us and that he looks upon us with favor, not because of anything that we have done, but merely by his mere good pleasure, he loves us. And he cares for us. And the ultimate display of that is seen at the cross in which the flood of God's fury is poured out on Jesus Christ for your sin and for my sin. And so if we trust in Jesus Christ, we no longer have to worry about God's wrath and judgment coming out upon us because Christ took it on our behalf. That is grace. Charles Stanley talks about a time when he was in seminary and his teacher wanted to teach him a lesson. And so uh, the class comes in and they gives them this test that is several pages. And it is a fair test, but it is an extremely difficult test. And so the students start uh, looking at the paper and, and, and the professor says, now I want you to read all the way through the test before you, um, before you hand it in, before you start on it. And even on the paper it said, read the entire test before you start filling it out. And so they start going through the pages of the test and and people are actually groaning out loud because the questions are so difficult and seem so unfair, even though uh, it is extremely fair. They were expected to know it. And so they, they flip through the pages and they finally get to the final page. And on that final page, it says, if you will sign your name here, you will get an automatic A. Bill, maybe you can use this in the LAMP seminary class. I'm sure all the students would greatly appreciate that. Sign here and you will get an A. Well, many of the students are sitting there thinking, is this, is this for real? Is this serious? And then they realize that they're learning about grace. They sign the paper and they hand it in and they get an A. Uh, the teacher tells the story of one student who refused to do that, who said, I am going to take the test on my own. And so he takes the test and he actually does fairly well. He gets a C+. Plus. But all he had to do was write his name and he would have gotten an A. Because that is grace. We aren't graded on what we know or what we do. We're graded on Christ's righteousness on our behalf. And so God shows grace to us. He shows grace to Noah by showing favor upon us. The third way that we see God's grace is through his covenant. Uh, This is later down in 9, and I won't go into it in detail because it will be covered in a later sermon. But very simply, a covenant is a promise. There's more than that, but simply it is a promise. Look in verse 17. 
It says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And then God here in verse 18 makes a promise to make a promise. Okay, He promises to make a promise later. Verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. And so God makes a promise to Noah of salvation. He makes a promise to Noah of life, even though he deserves destruction. You see, the ark is a picture of Christ. Noah was found inside the ark. And so when the destruction came down upon all mankind, it was shed away from Noah and he was raised up. When we find ourselves in Jesus Christ, when we trust in Jesus Christ, when God's destruction comes justly upon us all, his destruction is shed. And as we are found in Christ, we are lifted and we are saved and we avert God's destruction. And so God makes a covenant with us. And so God is extremely gracious to us. So in looking at ourselves, God's assessment that in and of ourselves, apart from Christ's work on our behalf, every intention of the thoughts of our heart are only evil continually. We see how it grieves God to his heart. It breaks his heart. We see how God carries out his just judgment upon humanity, a punishment that fits the crime. But in the midst of it, we also see God's grace, that he is patient, that he shows favor to us, and that he gives us his righteousness. And so the question is, is how would we respond to the grace of God? How would we respond to his love and his favor and his patience and his covenant towards us in Christ? Well, Noah gives us a great example of how a person might respond to such a wonderful gift of grace. Look in verse 9 with me, if you would, very quickly. At the end, it says that Noah walked with God. Look down at verse 21, the last verse, and it kind of explores more what it means that Noah walked with God. It says, Sorry, verse 22, it says, Noah did this, which is built the ark. He did all that God commanded him. Could you imagine what a tremendous step of faith this was for Noah? To walk with God for 120 years, to build an ark on dry land in a world that has never seen a raindrop. Can you imagine the ridicule he must have had from the townspeople would say, Old Noah, man, he has lost his marbles. He has fallen off the rocker. He is, he is gone. I, I mean, the, the laughter and the shame that must have ensued as Noah didn't pursue the lifestyles of everyone else but followed God because of his grace and favor towards him. I mean, it must have been amazing. Over 120 years of building the ark, the ridicule he must have suffered. And yet he said, I have heard the voice of God. I have received his favor and I will follow him. If you're here today and you trust in Jesus Christ, God calls us to do amazing things which are foolish in the sight of the world, not to pursue the pleasures of sin, but to pursue the righteousness and freedom that is found in God and in Christ Jesus, that we are called to give up our life, to serve and to love 
those around us. Many people would say at first that is noble, but to a certain extent it looks absolutely foolish. But the reason why we would step out in such boldness and such foolishness is in, in the eyes of the world is because we have experienced the grace and favor of God. Because we are saved by grace, we can and we must walk by faith. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we again see your assessment of humanity is consistent throughout the scriptures. It is nothing new, God. And yet a reminder of your grace, even in the devastation of our own sin and in the consequences of our own sin. We praise you that you are such a good God to people who do not deserve it, Lord. Let us leave this place overjoyed by your love for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, as we come to the table, pray that you would mold our hearts to praise you for the sacrifice you made, the judgment you took on our behalf. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On the night when Jesus was to be betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it and remember me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus Christ did indeed go to the cross and died on our behalf. He took upon God's wrath and God's judgment for all who trust in him. If you're here today and you trust in Jesus Christ, you trust that he has taken your judgment upon himself. This table is open to you. It does not belong to Jacob's well. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you trust in Jesus Christ, celebrate with us the judgment that Christ took on our behalf. But it is more than that. There is a spiritual reality to this, that God nourishes us spiritually through this communion, that we would now be able to walk with God with strength, that he would enable us to do so. And so as we hand these trays around, I would encourage you to repent. Confess to God that you have sinned. All of us have. And then turn to him, the secure of our salvation, Jesus Christ, who took on God's judgment in our place, that we can now walk with him. As we hand these out, if you would, please take them and pass them down to the end of the aisle. Uh, We will send out eight trays here. And so if you would just send it down, hold it when you receive it, and we will take together when it's all distributed.